great time to worship the Lord. Thank you for Andrew and Jenny and what you've done in their lives and how they've ministered here for so long, Lord. I pray that their ministry will continue to be fruitful um, and you will bless them, Lord. We thank you for men like Colonel Richard, Lord. Thank you for him. What a blessing he has been to many of us. And we thank you that you took him home, Lord, to be with you. You did not allow his suffering to continue and you let him come home. And so we pray that he will um, be honored tomorrow as we do his service and, and we will also be able to honor Colonel Dreyer as well, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Now, Lord, as we turn to your word, may you uh, cause us to have sensitive hearts to the word. May we allow the word to pierce our hearts. May we not be just hearers only, but doers of it. And may we treasure the truth of God's word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, what a great time that was. God did a miraculous thing. After 400 years of being in uh, Egypt, Joseph had led his small family into Egypt. They were 70 when they started. Somewhere around a good 150 years after Jacob and the family were there, they fell into slavery. The Bible says that there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, nor is God. And the nation fell into great slavery. And for at least 250 years, they were oppressed in full-blown slavery year after year, generation after generation. But God heard their cries. And God sent Moses, his mediator, to come and free them through the power of God. And you know the story, plagues he began to send on the nation of Egypt. And as he went through the plagues, after a little while, he separated out his people, protected the land of Goshen from his plagues, and he put the full attack on Egypt, proving that their gods were dead and he was the living God. You got down to the last plague, do you remember what it was? Oh, it was the plague of death, wasn't it? God told the nation to go get a lamb, a one-year-old unblemished lamb, one with no spot or wrinkle on it. It was to be pure. And they were to sacrifice this lamb. Such great detail is given in Exodus chapter 11 and 12 of what this was to look like and how this was to take place. And they were to take the blood of that slain lamb and they were to mark it on the doorpost. Almost looked like a cross, didn't it? As they put the blood of that lamb. And as that death angel passed through the camp that night, where the blood was there, the death angel passed by. And life remained. But where it wasn't, death struck the firstborn. Upon this Passover, the Lord instituted what he called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In time, these two beautiful feasts, the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, would really unite as one as I believe God intended those to happen. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 gives us the understanding of this. It says, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, and you shall celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything, leaven, from the first day until the seventh day, now listen to this, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Well, both the Passover and this Feast of Unleavened Bread were really now becoming one celebration. It was an act to celebrate what God had done, that 
he had spared their lives, that he had granted them freedom, and they were to respond to it. Verse 14 in Exodus chapter 12 says it's a memorial, it's an act of remembrance they were to do. They were to remember this. And not just alleviating them from slavery and passing over from them. It was to be an act of worship for future generations and tell everyone what God had done. The Jews were to remember that. Verse 15, the Bible told us there in Exodus 12, that the instructions now move from a Passover to the following week. There was a seven-day period starting on the 14th of that month that this unleavened bread was to be held, this feast. Seven is a biblical number, it seems. It has an idea of completeness within the Scriptures. And so the Israelites were to have a sacred period of the seven days to remember all that God had done, how He brought them out of slavery. Now they were told to remove from their house and any consumption of yeast and making unleavened bread the important lesson here in this feast. First, again, it was for remembrance. But secondly, there was a much deeper reason. The unleavened bread was a symbol of breaking away from sin, breaking away particularly from the slavery of sin. And the instructions were to remove the leaven from their houses. They were to sweep it out in a way of saying, we are not going to allow the the sin and the, uh, the worldliness of Egypt to influence us, and we are going to leave that behind, and we don't want their corruption of their world to invade our lives. In other words, leaven throughout the Bible is always described as a spread of sin. Now, the nation of Israel was to cleanse itself of this because God rescued them, and they're free now. So God used this feast to say, keep my people pure. Keep my people pure. The result is, you remember there in verse 15 as I read it, if they don't do this, they were to be cut off. Now this has a lot of implications when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week in the sermon, we laid out the first five verses. And if you missed that sermon, I really encourage you to go back and and listen to it. We teach verse by verse, so there's a context here we go through. But there, we began to see that Paul says there's this immoral man among you Uh, He's so immoral that it doesn't even exist in the pagan world. But we realize that Paul was more concerned about the church's lack of taking care of sin. The man was obvious. He needed to be put out of his church. Paul had already taken him through the steps of discipline. He needed to go. His greater concern was this church. Why would they allow this to happen? So as we get to verse 6 through 13... Now we begin to see his theological argument, why he said what he said in his rebuke in verses 1 through 5. Now, disobedience is always connected to pride. Pride is where our disobedience most of the time comes from. When we sin, it's because of pride. We know what God says, but we we think better. Our pride tells us that we're going to do something different, and so we end up in sin. And so Paul Paul's going to deal with that. And sin's greedy, you know that? Sin is extremely greedy. It's it's certainly not happy just to have a singular victim. Sin loves to have multiple victims, loves loves, loves to spread itself among people, among the church even. 
And so the sin of professing Christians that is in a church must be taken serious. Paul, that's what this passage is about. There's sin among you. You've done nothing about it. And so he begins to show theologically why they must do this. He employs an Old Testament principle here, one that I've set up for you out of Exodus chapter 12, that this sin of taking the leaven and cleaning it out. Sin always attacks the joy of the festival of of the church. Uh, There's no more sobering times when we gather at a church membership meeting or church members meeting is when we have to do church discipline. You You can just feel the tension when we have to share of the sin of someone. See, sin always robs the festival of joy, knowing that Jesus has set us free. Sin attacks that. And sin begins in the heart, and then it affects the attitude, and then it flushes itself out in deeds. But we are the purified house of God, right? The Bible says the church is the temple of the living God, right? We're the, we're the temple of, of the Spirit. He takes resident within us. The church belongs to Jesus. He's the head of all the redeemed, and he has purified for himself a house. In fact, as you'll see in this text, he has made us to be a new lump of dough, and he's taken out the yeast from us, and he wants us to be pure for him. And so Paul is going to work very hard in this text to help us, text, help us understand that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has made you new. So stop living like you're old. That's the thought here. That's where he's going. And so the church belongs to Jesus. And we obey not to be his church. We obey because we are his church. That's why we obey. So let's apply these truths as we look at the text. Number one first thought in this text. The Passover lamb was sacrificed to give victory over our contaminating sin. This is a good point. We want to see this. The Passover lamb, that's Lord Jesus Christ, the final lamb, was sacrificed to give victory over our contaminating sin. Now the apostle Paul here is reasserting his apostolic authority, right? They've They've rejected him, but we see him come in very strong at chapter 4. Do you want me to come in love or do you want me to bring the rod? (laughs) I'd rather come in love, but I might have to bring the rod because of your rebellious hearts. And so we see this apostolic authority. He's reminding them that he's present with them because the Spirit is with him and the Spirit was with them. We saw that last week. So he says, therefore, look. He pronounces discipline on this incestuous man, this man that's living with his mother-in-law, and he voices this great disappointment that the church would allow this to happen, that they would let this sinfulness in their midst is the word he uses. And certainly Paul's concerned about the redemption of the man. He says that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's concerned about that. Those who actually practice church discipline are actually more concerned about the soul of someone than those who don't. Because we know what God, how God uses church discipline to restore people. But his greatest concern is the church. Now let's look at a key problem. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Your boasting is not good, Paul starts this section out. Remember, he's starting to now bring his theological position for what he said in the first five verses. 
And he's repeatedly said in the, last, in the first four chapters that their sin of boasting has led them astray. It led them from biblical truth. It led them to see the glory of the cross to now this foolish worldly wisdom. And he's been after that. You're boasting. You're boasting. It shows that the Corinthians were not concerned about the situation. It actually shows, as we saw last week, that they, were, they almost had a prideful attitude that they're not doing anything about this. And we said this last week. We said, we see this in other churches when one church does church discipline and somebody runs over there and they, they follow up and call the other pastors and say, hey, here's how we've lovingly taken this person through church discipline. Hey, would you help us? We're trying to restore that. And the church says, look, uh, yeah, we're not into that. We, we just believe God's a God of love and so forth and so forth. And so there's this arrogancy. We see it even today. And what that is is saying, we know God's word says, and Jesus himself says in Matthew 18 that this process should take place, but hey, we're going to elevate the the attribute of God of love over all the rest of his attributes. Now he says, do you not know? (laughs) Well, Paul here attempts to show this absurdity of their arrogance (laughs) that I'm going to show you that you're arrogant by an Old Testament lesson. Or, and if you can't remember the Old Testament les- lesson that he doubtlessly taught them, let me take you into your own kitchen. Your own kitchen to teach you a lesson about leaven and about bread. And so he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now certainly that's a Hebrew Jewish expression coming out of the Old Testament, but maybe it would be, say this, in their Gentile, their pagan world, one bad apple does what? Ruins the whole bunch. Very similar, right? And so this is the truth he's trying to say. Don't you know this? I mean, you know this from your kitchen. You know, remember, no refrigeration in this day. Things didn't last very long, particularly bread. Bread was baked day after day after day because it would spoil because of the yeast. And so when Paul says, do you not know, it's most likely because he taught them these truths. Remember, he's teaching from the Old Testament New Testament truths, because Jesus said all of the Old Testament is about me, so that's all they had at this time. They didn't have the New Testament written, um, not most of it. A few portions were written by this point, but most of it was not written. So he would teach out of the Old Testament. He would use these principles, and when he says the Passover lamb in this passage, they knew exactly who he was talking about. They knew that Old Testament principle that was taught in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And so don't you know? Don't you know? See, this is where arrogance takes you. Arrogance takes us to a place where we take truths that we should know, we should be living by, and we dismiss them because we love our sin more than we love the truth. And Paul says, don't you know, it's a rebuke. See, they would not, they may not have remembered all of the spiritual truths of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they certainly would have understood how leaven works. Keep a, he says, keeping a little portion, right? He says, keep a little, he uses the term little here, a little leavens the whole group. Well, just understanding bread is, is just an interesting study in itself, but just a little back from last week's dough, you just take a little bit of that portion, you keep it back from last week's dough, and you start a new process with this new dough. And so the process goes on and on. So God here is speaking through Paul, and he's saying, look, this leaven is making its way back through the bread, back through the church. It's contaminating. 
And we, and we know that if you don't keep bread that has preservatives in it, if you don't keep it in the refrigerator today, it won't last very long, right? If you make your own bread and you don't put any preservatives in it, you leave it on the counter in a day or two, it's just contaminated. And so here was the opportunity for Paul to take a truth to teach them that, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread not only was spiritual, but it had practical implications. And the feast was to allow them to clean out the leaven and to start with a fresh lump. Look, yeast is hard to get out of bread, but it's easy to get into it. They tell you, when you study this a little bit, I did some reading on this through the years, that yeast is in the air. And so when they have bread cook-offs, like they do in Paris every year for the sourdough uh, championships of the world, the guys who come from San Francisco to, who have been winning it the last few years have to vacuum seal everything so no yeast from planes, from, from Paris air, from anywhere else, because yeast is all over the place, would get into their mix so they could still keep that exact flavor they have in their sourdough in San Francisco. So it's easy. Look, it's hard to get out, but it's easy to get in. See, isn't that a picture of sin, isn't it? Sin's hard to root out sometimes because we want to blame shift. We want to put that on somebody else. It's very difficult for us to get to the point at times, sadly enough, to say, oh God, that sin is my fault. I need to remove it by your grace. New Testament talks about leaven all through it. Jesus is one of the ones who speaks about it most. He says in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, and he was giving orders, saying to them, listen to this, watch out. Now, this is all in emphatic words of Jesus Christ. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Isn't that interesting? He takes the leaven of a religious group, right? They kept all the law. They did all these things. They were known as high religious people. He says he links them together with a, with a chi, which we translate in as being equal. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He says, watch out for them. They'll pollute you. They'll pollute you. Paul, speaking to the church in Galatia after they had fallen away and following false teaching of Judaism, he says in chapter 5, 7 through 9, you were running so well. Who's hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. And then he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So this is a problem, right? This is where sin gets in. This is what happened to the church. They had this man living in sin. They did nothing about it, and it was polluting the church. The church that Jesus Christ died for. The church that Jesus Christ's blood washes clean. Oh, brothers and sisters, God is serious about church discipline. See, it would have been natural for the church of Corinth, and I think for us as well, to make some kind of list, right? And, and you go, well, give us a list and we'll do that. But, but lists are dangerous, right? Because they bypass the heart. We make a little list of things. Okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. We've we got to go to the heart. That's where this stuff comes from, right? And if we don't remove the leaven of our heart, a list just becomes a legalistic tool. But with that said... Where's the sin? I mean, it's so hard. You know, as a pastor, you study this stuff all week long, and you go, oh, Lord. And so I wrote the question, Lord, where's sin contaminating my heart? Where is it not being swept out of my life? Where is it in your life? See, it, yeast is very small. <laughs> it's very, very small. If you buy a package of yeast at the store, it's in this very small, very teeny, teeny little granule stuff that's baked into there. 
It's very small, isn't it? And it may, has a way of contaminating everything that it gets into. Just a little bit of, of, of leaven left over from last week's bread can, can consume the, loop, the, the loaf of next week's bread. See, that's the idea. What are you willing to do to remove it? Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's better to go into the kingdom of God blind, he says. Now, he's using radical statements, isn't he? He's speaking figuratively there. He's, and what he's telling us is when we discover leaven, when we discover sin in our life, by the grace of God, by the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should take radical steps to get rid of it because it's going to invade the rest of you and then it's going to invade the church. That's what it does. Look at verse 7 with me. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Well, you can see Paul takes this opportunity to bring both the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover together to kind of drive home his point. And look, he's using imperatives in this verse 7. Clean it out. There's not suggestions here. Get rid of the old so you can become what you already are, the new, is what he's saying here. Now certainly... The old would be referring to this incestuous man, right? But there's a larger context. The church has yeast in it. The church has leaven in it because of their hard hearts not to obey God and put this man out. But look what he says. So that you may be a new lump. Be a new lump for God. He says, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. He's he's reminding them of who they are. See, he, he wants them to live through the grace of God. Be the new loaf that is brought together by the sheer grace of God. Be that person. And I think what he's doing is he's, he's recognizing the sovereignty of God and the fact that he not only saves us, but he keeps us saved. And he, and he, and he wants us to deal with our disobedience. So listen, brothers and sisters. If, we're our God, if we are truly God's lump of dough... So listen up, lumpy. If we're really, truly the new lump of dough which God has created through His Son's finished work, then it's time to deal with sin. See, this is what, this is what studying God's Word does for us. It, it brings us to the ultimately glory of the Lord, the Passover lamb and all that He did. But you can't, if you, if you understand Jesus right, you can't look at His glorious work on the cross and not go, oh Lord, you saved me from my sins. Help me live in light of that. See, that's what Paul's trying to do here. And he's appealing to them. He's appealing to them in their positional holiness, Right? So he's, he's speaking doctrinally here. This is his theological argument, right? At the time of salvation, there's initial sanctification. God takes you and sets you apart. That's where you're justified, declared righteous. No work of your own. No res- this is not your response. This is the work of God working in your life, calling you out of darkness, setting you aside for him. But then he sets you on this wonderful spiritual journey that we sometimes call progressive sanctification, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's all built off of our positional holiness, initial sanctification. And that's what he's saying. That's what you are. You are the new lump of of dough. You are God's bread. 
And then he says this. Now look at this passage. End of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. See, now he's going to explain how the new loaf came about. See, the Passover lamb has always been slaughtered on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's how it always happened. They were to take that lamb, that unblemished lamb that lived with them the week prior to that. And on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that lamb, was pass- that lamb of, for the Passover was sacrificed for them, for their sins, to commemorate their life that was given to them. But what resulted from that was a seven-day festival of not eating unleavened bread. And isn't that interesting? I want you to think with me. When we look at the Passover lamb, what results of that is a feast, a festival of life, of living without leaven. You see the connection? Are you following me? You see it in the passage? The Passover lamb starts the life of living without sin. That doesn't mean we're perfect. But it means we sweep out the house regularly by the sheer grace of God. How long has it been since you took the spiritual broom to your house? To where you really said, God, there's things in my life that are not pleasing to you. See, Paul is emphasizing that the fact that Christ has been sacrificed, and that gives us the ability to sweep out those old sinful habits. Christ died for us. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. You don't have to live by the old ways, is what he's saying. Oh, Christian, if we have everything we need in Jesus Christ, we have his word, we are to live glorifying lives to the Passover lamb. We, listen, we don't have life if he doesn't pass over. The blood of Jesus Christ is not painted on the doorpost of our lives. Death comes. And eternal death is what you should fear the most. Second thought, we are to be celebrating the feast on the gospel of truth with all sincerity. We are to be celebrating and, and feast on the gospel of truth with all its sincerity. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, therefore, gives you the idea, he's summing up his biblical argument in a way. And so, in other words, he begins to say, look, take this incestuous man, take him to step four discipline as I have, and put him out of the church. And while at the same time, sweep out your own lives of the sinful leaven of pride because of your arrogance, that it remains there. And look out, there are more things like wickedness in, in, in your midst. And so he brings up new things here. He says, do this all because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the one who has given you everything you need to enjoy this feast of worship and this feast of truth that we now have. He says, let us celebrate the feast. And he's just bringing you back to this beauty of the Old Testament, right? When, when Old Testament saints truly believed that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, that, that great day of atonement, that they could come back and offer a lamb and commemorate the great truth that God set them free, they truly believed they were forgiven, albeit temporarily, because they had to keep offering lambs till the final lamb came. They, they really had great joy at that. 
they would sing and there would be trumpets and choirs and, and all of the tribes would come together and there's great praise to God that their sins were forgiven. Again, albeit temporarily in the Old Testament toward the final lamb could come, but there was great joy. And listen, brothers and sisters, when we don't sweep out the leaven in our life, we lose our joy. And I think it's one of the biggest problems in the church today is joyless Christians. We've listened to the world for so long, especially over the last couple of years, tell us how to live our lives, tell us how, how everything should be. And the church has lost its joy. The church has lost its holy kiss for one another. The church has lost so much. And he says, look, there's more leaven here. He, he, he now, notice he qualifies more leaven. He says malice and wickedness. And these two words are synonymous and, and they're to be understood as sin is just a great offense against God, a holy God who sent his own son to die for us. And this was what his death and burial and resurrection had done. They've come to free us from this type of livelihood, right? This type of living, right? Malice and wickedness. These are terrible terms. They're they're degrading, they're, they're rejecting of, of how God wants the church to treat each other. We're called brothers and sisters who love each other, who care for each other, who embrace each other, who weep with each other and, 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 and joyful with each other when great things happen. He says, you've got to sweep out the maliceness, this, this gossip with the intent to hurt, this wickedness that just shows how offensive sin is to God, it has to go. And, and Philippians chapter 2 says we do this because God's working in us to give us strength to live in this perverse generation, right? I mean, it, brothers and sisters, is not our generation very perverse and getting more perverse as we watch it go, right? So the church can't become more perverse. The church has to be just the opposite. We must be the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love and kindness that Christ showed us in salvation should be seen in a church like this. And we should embrace one another and care for one another. Notice he also says, with a conjunction, said, but with the unleavened bread of truth and sincerity, right? Or sincerity and truth. Again, these are two synonymous words. They express a, an idea of deep truth, right? Sincerity denoted the quality of being free from any trace of unfaithfulness, right? We used to sign our letters, right? You know, sincere, sincerely Scott. The idea of that word means I'm faithful. That's the idea of that. The word got weakened as time went on. And then truth is the divine character of God. So instead of having this wickedness and malice, that leaven there, we should have the unleavened bread of this sincerity, faithfulness towards God, and this truth with us. And when Pilate is, Jesus is before Pilate, and Jesus speaks to him that he is the truth, and Pilate, remember what he says? Oh, what is truth? Ask the world what truth is. They have no definition for truth. They reject the Bible. They have no definition of truth. They have a shifting shadow of what they think is truth. You and I have truth. You want to clean out the leaven in your life? Start living according to truth. This is what Jesus does for us. See, we're called as a church to live in truth. 
which is opposition to the world's lies and their unfaithfulness. God has made us men and women, boys and girls of truth. We should feast on humility versus boasting. Truth humbles you, doesn't it? Here's the truth. I deserve hell, and God gave me salvation through Jesus Christ. That's humbling, isn't it? It's undeserved grace. And so, humility and purity through the gospel, brothers and sisters, allows the feast of the gospel to take place. Just listen to how the Bible speaks. The Bible says we are the true, the, excuse me, the true church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And we are saved by Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. His truth has set us free, John 8.32. We, we are spiritually nourished through the truth of God's word, John 17.17. 17. We have the spirit of truth living in us, John 16.13. We can speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And because of the truth of the gospel, it re he remains in us, Galatians 2, 5. And we are God's children who walk in truth, 3 John, verse 4. Amen? I mean, that's who we are. That's who God has made us to be. This is sweeping out that unleavened that is in our life. Third thought. The true church has no partnership or friendship with the lost world as it remains a dangerous mission field. This is quite a wordy point, so let me explain. Paul is going to show through his theological argument that we have no business, eternal business, with the world, and yet God sends us into the world, which is a dangerous place. Every day when you go to work, God is sending you into a dangerous world with a glorious message. It's dangerous out there. And it's dangerous out there because it's a world devoid of God in, in the salvific uh, thought, right? God's there. He's certainly creator and owner of all things and so forth. But, but it is a dangerous world. It's where Satan's domain is. This is what we talked about last week. And Paul says, put him out. I've already delivered him over to Satan. And we understood that to mean that when we put somebody out in step four to church discipline is we put them back into Satan's world. And not always does Satan take their life, but maybe if they're truly saved, they go, oh my goodness, I, this is not what I want. I do not want to be a part of this wicked world. I need to repent of my sin. And they come back and they repent and come back to the church. And so there's dangerous out there. And that's, that's what the church is told, not to have partnership with the world. We're, we're a freak show, man. Who, who can imagine somebody, I said this several times, you watch in the world, you know, half the people that live their life on CNN and wherever else, if they tune into this, they're going to say a couple of things. Those people are lost it, and we got to get rid of them. Because they won't let us marry who we want to marry. They won't let us um, redefine love. They won't let us destroy the unborn. They won't let us do any of those things because of their Jesus. So, so it's a dangerous world, isn't it, that we live in as Christians? And, and, and we've said this many times, we're foolish if we tell an unbeliever that everything's going to be great in your life if you get saved. It's a lot easier being unsaved while you're in this world. You have no spirit of God who convicts you. You just run around and do whatever you want to do. Oh, it's dangerous, isn't it? We live in a dangerous world, but God has given us the protection of his own son's blood, and he put us in a church that he purified. This is beautiful, isn't it? Look at verses 9 and 10. 
I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Well, this is not in some new context here. He's, he's resolving this, this former letter that he wrote. And so we understand that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter he's written. And maybe he wrote several letters. But at least one of these letters, he said, don't get involved with the world. There's problems out there, isn't there? And so now Paul's rebuke here is, is nothing new. It's a, it's a repeated warning. Be careful to be associated with immoral people. When you look at this, and maybe at first glance you say, well, that seems kind of harsh, Scott. I said, but think about it. Paul consistently spoke of a lifestyle of a gospelized person. He constantly talks about it. Every letter he writes, inspired by the Spirit of God, talks about a gospelized person. A person where their gospel has infected them, that they live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, striving by the Spirit's help to deny worldly desires and self. That's how the Bible speaks. And this is how Paul has wrote. Notice the word not to associate. It's an interesting word. It's used in two places. One here. Um, it, literally, the verb means not to mix together. In the non-biblical uh, Greek literature, we find it in don't separate those two things. Don't put those things together or there's an explosion. So that's the idea of the word. It's used in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, very similar context. He says this, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that they would be put to shame. Now again, that's coming back to that fourth step of discipline, meaning we don't have a normal Christian relationship with them. This is so important to understand because we have gone to step forward with people in this church and church discipline. And, but it means that we don't love them in the fact that we share the gospel with them, but we don't have normal relationships with them that we would have with one another. That's what Paul is trying to do. And this is what, what's not happening in Corinth. This brother's in an incestuous relationship, not even named among the pagans, and they got him in the middle of the church. That means they're doing the Lord's table together. They're having fellowship meals. They're doing all that. They're letting this brother who's in sin just enjoy the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mockery, isn't it? And God says, put him out. So Paul here comes with the second warning. Now he wrote another letter to him, warns them that people who, now listen to this, or who are in rebellion in open sin. And I'm very careful how I word this because all of us are sinners, right? All of us have some leaven issues, don't we? And I hope all of us, as we hear the word of God today, are going, yes, Scott, you're right. There are some leaven in my life that I really need to deal with right now. I'm not honoring God with some things. But when we live in open rebellion, when we know what God says to do, but we won't do it, and we're almost proud of those things, in this arrogant sense, God says, put them out. And, and Paul had instructed of it. So, but Paul did not mean that they would have no contact with the unredeemed sinners of the world because that would mean you'd have to leave the world, right? Most of you, many of you have businesses. You work um, or work for somebody else. You're in the world, aren't you? But you're not to be what? Of it. There's a big difference. And he says, look, he says this little phrase here, not at all. It meant not in all circumstances, right? Doubtless there are circumstances that arise in which you have to have some kind of relationship with the pagan world, right? 
Years ago, um, our postmaster in our very little teeny town of 50 people <laughs> um, who was in our church fell into sin, and uh, she wouldn't repent of it, and we went through this, lovingly went through the steps of church discipline, and we put her out. Well, she's our postmaster. Okay? We don't have mailboxes where we lived, right? We were out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, I remember when we finally moved to town, my boys come up to me and said, Dad, can you believe they bring the mail to your house? We had to go to our postmaster and get our mail. Now, she's under church discipline. So how am I, the pastor who led the church in church discipline, how am I supposed to react to her? Her name was Lori. Every time I saw her, I shared the gospel with her. Hundreds of times, every time I got the, picked up my mail, every time I said, Lori, Jesus Christ dies for sin. Will you repent? I want you to come back, be in fellowship with the church. You know what she did? One day she called me on an Easter Sunday morning and said, um, I want to come to church, but I know I'm under church discipline, but God's changing my heart and I see my sin. Can I come? And I said, you can come, but you have to meet with the elders right afterwards. And she said, I would. Four months later, after meeting with her counseling and working through it, she stood before our little teeny church in tears and asked them to forgive her of her sins. And she was restored. So that's the process of church discipline. That's how it works. That's how God designed it. I think she was a true believer all along, but she needed to go out into the world. She needed to lose the loss of this beautiful fellowship of, church, of the church that God gives to believers and realize, I'm now in Satan's world and I don't like it. I need to go back and I need to look at that leaven that was in my heart and I need to confess that. And so look, there's times where people are put out in the world and you still have to deal with people, right? He's talking about the church here. We're the redeemed. Notice in verse 10, he adds some more things to this. Covetous. This is one who possesses a sinful desire for more. It's the spirit of self-promotion. They can't get enough. And listen, when you get around somebody who covets things, who desires more and more, and they're just never satisfied, and they've got to have the next thing, next thing, if you hang around that long enough, it'll start to affect you. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, don't we? It's leaven. God warns us, be careful of those people. Some of them are maybe even in the church and shouldn't be. They're so caught up in self. And when you get around them, I know I've been there pretty soon. You have these desires and you look at your checkbook and you look at what seems to be theirs and you go, there's a big difference here. And you begin to covet. He talks about swindlers here. These are those who tip to see something unlawfully, right? It's a form of robbery. They're thinking somehow how they can skim a little bit off the top or take some or trick somebody into something. This is wickedness, and sometimes it ends up in the church. We are always watching for this as shepherds. People enter the church trying to get your business. They're not here for the gospel. So we watch for this stuff. But then he says idolatry, and this really sums up all of it, right? It's the sin of the heart. And so the world is full of such people. The Bible says this is what the world is full of. Be careful. And I'm not telling you that you're not supposed to be out there. I'm actually telling you, you'll be out there, but you'll have to be at the gospel that will keep you separate from them. Look at verse 11. But I actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brothers. Isn't the difference in here? See, they have twisted his words here. He says, look, I actually said this. 
not to associate with so-called brothers. I wasn't talking about the world. You can't live in the world. You've got to go to market. You've got to buy food. You've got to do business. You've got to do all those things. But I'm talking about so-called brothers, Paul says. If he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with the man. Seems harsh, doesn't it? But here, look, he's, there's this understanding that there's this more to this, right? And he says, look, their life is, is, is compromised. It's full of sin. And I think Paul clearly here is not advocating the sinlessness of, of the Christian community in any way. We're, we're saved sinners and we're, 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 by the grace of God, attempting to sweep leaven out of life. But he is rather concerned about those who continue in rebellious open sin, right? It mocks the Passover lamb who died for them. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I live like the world. People tell me that all the time, and I say, so let me, let me see if I get this right. Then Christ has no power to change you. But you don't understand, Pastor. I, I, I just have these addictions. I have this. I have these great desires. So let me ask you a question. Does Christ have power to change you or not? I mean, you have to present that because I, I can't change a person as a pastor or counselor. I know who it is to change them. It is the power of the Passover lamb that he sacrificed himself for them. And so by the grace of God, there is a consistency to the church, right? We consistently live with the Lord, confessing our sins, walking with him. There's an intimate relationship with him. And Paul has, has look, he says, look, we're to follow Jesus Christ just as I followed him. And he taught that all things are new through the Spirit. And we have the mind of Christ in the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 16. And those who belong to Christ must put off that former way of life. Resist the devil. Stand firm in your faith, Peter says. You can do it. The Bible teaches us that we can do this. We can resist him and stand firm in our faith. See, isn't the word of God kind to us? I love the scriptures because they say, Scott, you don't have to live that way anymore. You can be different. You can live for Jesus. I've given you everything you need. I think it's kind of God, isn't it? But how foolish to believe that people who live in persistent, rebellious, unrepentive sin are followers of the Jesus Christ. God says, put them out. And you'll see whether they're a believer. You put them out, they're going to come back. They're going to go out there and go, no, that's not me. Jesus has died for me. See, I repent of it in turn. You put them out and they don't come back. You realize they were never of us. This is God's form, God's way of showing who are his children. Notice he uses the word so-called believers. He adds to this revilers and drunkards, right? Two more characteristics of the lost. A reviler is somebody who verbally sins against another by maligning them and slandering them. A drunkard is simply a person who can't control himself. I mean, this time of life, it isn't hard to do a little historical research. Clean water was like none. <laughs> there just wasn't clean water. The water was bad. Timothy drank the water, and Paul said, take a little wine for your stomach. It killed things. It, was, it had a medicinal use to it in a lot of ways. And, and so wine is not the issue. It's self-control is the issue. And so a person who is not, never in control of themselves marks himself as not having what? The Spirit of God, because self-control is the mark of the Spirit of God. That's why he's doing this. He's showing opposite of what the Spirit has. 
Now he says, by their actions, is what Paul's leading to here, they've displayed to you they're not part of the community of believers. Look at verse 11. Don't even eat with them. Well, some people think this is the Lord's table. I don't think that's what he's talking about because unbelievers have no right to the table. The table does nothing for them, right? So I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking more about Christian fellowship, all the blessings of coming to Christ and having a group of people that you share everything in. Friday night we had a hymn sing here. It was sweet. A bunch of us sang hymns for an hour or so, and then we went into the fellowship hall, and we just had ice cream, and we sat around tables and just talked about life and our love for the Lord Jesus and just spending time together. That's sweet. Do you want your sin to take you away from this? This is what God gives to the believers. He gives us sweet fellowship. James chapter 4 says that if you're a friend with the world, you're no longer a friend with God, but you're his enemy. 2 Corinthians 16, 14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness, lawlessness or what has fellowship with excuse me, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Fourth and final thought here as I gotta hurry. We strive for the purity of the church and let God judge the world. Look at verses 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, Paul concludes his argument here. He's finished showing the differences between the church and the outside. He's different, showing the differences between leaven and unleaven. He's used all of these Old Testament arguments and truths to help people realize it's time to clean the leaven out, right? And I think Paul has made it abundantly clear that we are, have nothing to do with the judgment of the world. The world is the world, right? And here he's telling us, let God be the judge of the world. But it's altogether different when it comes to the case within the church, is what Paul is saying. And he uses what we call what, a rhetorical question. He says, do you not judge, verse 12, those who are within the church? It's rhetorical. Well, of course we do. You know, all these people are saying, oh, Christians shouldn't judge. Well, this, Bible, this verse tells us we are to judge Christians. Now, it means you better come with a, a repentive uh, uh, humble, broken heart. Before we ever do any steps of church discipline, there's a time of who's ever involved in this, of, of making sure we're right with the Lord, that it's not done out of anger or, or done at any other reason. Um, the goal is restoration, restoration, restoration. That's always the goal of church discipline. But the Bible says they're supposed to do it. He says, rhetorically, we're, we're to judge the church. That's what we do. And I think it's foolish and it's inconsiderate to see a fellow believer who's captured by sin and sit back and never say anything to them. What kind, of, what kind of spouse do you have that lets you live in sin and they don't say anything to you? Now, how they say it might be the problem. But good, good marriages say, hey, sweetie, that hurt. And you work through that and you ask each other to forgive you. And you move on and you thank the Lord for that. See, that's love. That's love. It's what we do. See, Paul here is telling us there's a responsibility to love somebody who's in sin. 
There's a responsibility to bring them to restoration. That's what we do. This is the fulfillment of Matthew 18. This is obeying Jesus Christ's words. This is how we care for them. And it does not mean that our world doesn't need to be evangelized. There are people who say, well, look, we're just totally separatists now. No, you're not. You're told to go into the world and make disciples, not make partners. <laughs> so we go into the world sharing the gospel. And I'm telling you what, the world's either going to kick you in the teeth or they're going to give you a hug. Because they got saved. One of the two. That's the way it works. But that's what we do. Look at verse 13. But those who are outside the church, God judges. That's a very important verse, isn't it? Very important. Because I think the problem is with some of the American church right now is it's so overly concerned with the world's problem that they're not even cleaning their own house out. We're mad at the government. We're mad at... COVID and vaccines and masks and we're mad at everything, right? Facebook's just flying hot full of Christians that are complaining about stuff. I'm warning you folks, please be careful with that. Paul's saying, look at your own life. Are we, are we through Jesus Christ a lighthouse? Or do we just melt in with the rest of the grumblers and complainers? See, God's going to judge the world. They get away with nothing. Let him do it. (laughs) Let God judge the administrations of this world. He will put them before himself and he will declare them guilty and they will head for eternal hell if they haven't repented. He's really good at judging. We're not. (laughs) When it comes to that. Oh, let him handle that. I don't have time, but just write this down. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31 is a warning for believers who don't repent. There are several warning passages through the book of Hebrews, and man, they'll scare you when you read them. They'll talk about you've tasted the Spirit of God, and yet you stay in rebellion. There is no grace for you. <laughs> that doesn't mean loss of salvation. That means you sat in church, you heard the glories of Jesus Christ, and then you went out and lived like a pagan, and you didn't care. So Jesus wasn't enough for you, then he's never going to be enough for you. And the Bible warns that. Well, finally, he just says, remove the wicked man. That's step four, church discipline. If this person, particularly this case, this incestuous man, if he is to left in the church, it will pollute the church and the light of the church will leave. See, we take it very serious because we don't want Jesus to leave this church. That's why we do church discipline here. We don't want Jesus to leave our church. He says, he warns the church in Laodicea, I'll remove your lampstand because of your sin. Well, let me finish with this just bit of application. He says, God, I don't, wanna, I don't want leaven in my life. And, and if I have to try to help my spouse or anybody else or friend or someone in the church, how do I do that without being sinful? Well, first and foremost, love Christ in his word. I remember when I was young and growing in the Lord and struggling with my own sin, I remember praying, Lord, God, help me love your son. It's where I started, first started developing Christ-centeredness in my life. I had to pray that prayer over and over. Lord, help me love your son. Not just Jesus, I love you type of singing, but really love him. Love Jesus. Every time I see and hear the gospel, whether it's reading or preaching or singing, may it melt my heart. That's the, you, if you want to deal with love, and you've got to love Jesus. 
And you got to love his word. <laughs> you can't make up some designer Jesus. It's got to be the Jesus of the word. And so if you want to deal with loving in your life and you go, Scott, you've hit some things in my life or the spirit has hit some things in your life, more importantly, and you say, God, I want to deal with this. Love Jesus and his word. Love the brethren. Don't think you're going to go to a different church because now we don't fit your time frame because we're going to one service. This is your church. Ooh, sorry about that one. Trust your elders. Trust that we have your best concern and love the membership of the church. This is Christ's body. He placed you in where you are edified and nourished. Don't leave the church. It's dangerous out there. We go out there on mission uh, trips every Monday morning, right? That's our mission trips. This is where we're fueled. This is where we deal with life here so we can go out there. Love the church. Be discipled and disciple others. One of the ways you're going to have to deal with leaven is you're not discipled. You're going you're to fall into issues. Grow in sound doctrine. That means don't have your doctrine leaky. <laughs> Some of your doctrines leaky. You've been reading Jesus Calling. Stuff like that that's just horrible theology. It all sounds good. But it's bad theology. Have sound theology. Be a worshiper. Still be amazed at Lord. Don't be a mumbler. Don't make excuses. Use your gift. <laughs> right? You know, everybody's singing. I'm a... Do you believe it or not? I don't have a great voice. But if you come stand with me, I'm going to roll your socks up and down because I love singing about my Savior. Sing. Worship. Let Christ and his word motivate your life, not legalism. Quit making lists. Love Jesus. He'll take care of the list. Lovingly confront sin. Hate it in your life. Lord, thanks for this time. I've gone late. Oh, these are dear people here, Lord. You blood-bought every one of them here who confesses Jesus as their Savior. They are your bride. They're white, dressed in white, Lord. Oh, cause us as your bride to love your Son and his word. And Lord, we'll deal with sin your way. Thank you for these dear people. Strengthen them, Lord. They're going out to the mission field. It's dangerous, Lord. Strengthen them in Jesus' name. Amen.